Let's pray together. Ask God to meet us as we open up the word. Lord, thank you for these things that have been shared and for your presence here with us and all the ways you've already worked in our lives. And I pray for more. I pray for even more of your work. I need your work in me, Lord. Give me the right heart. Give me clarity of mind. Help me to be in accord with your word and work in all of our hearts that we would be blown away with who you are and what you have done in choosing Israel to display your glory to the nations and that we would all be strengthened in trusting Jesus because of this time this morning in the word. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. I want you to think about... um, all the different nations that have been out there, civilizations through world history. Just kind of think about different nations coming to your mind. And when you, when you study the nations and, and different civilizations that have risen and fallen, I think we'd all agree that, that one of the most unique nations has got to be the nation of Israel, right? I mean, on a number of different fronts. I listed a couple of them here. First of all, how many nations have a body of literature that's thousands of years old, okay, that still forms their identity today? Israel, with the Old Testament. How many nations um, believe as part of their culture that, that the reason they exist as a nation is because God supernaturally created them and formed them into a nation? That's what Israel believes. Think of all the nations out there. How many nations have the continuity over thousands of years like Israel has? You can go back 3,500 years to Moses, 4,000 years to Abraham. How many have had continuity in terms of land and pretty much in terms of culture, in terms of same language for thousands of years? How many nations have prospered as much as Israel has? 1 Kings 10 during the time of Solomon, says that silver in Israel was as common as stone. First Kings 10 is an amazing chapter about the wealth that was there in Israel. Also, and lastly, how many nations have suffered as much as Israel has? 722 BC, because of their idolatry, God allowed the king of Assyria to destroy the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. 586 B.C., because of Israel's continuing idolatry, God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come and destroy Jerusalem and to deport most of Israel away to Babylon. 70 A.D., Rome destroyed Jerusalem. Not one stone was left on another. And then think of the millions killed during World War II and the Holocaust. So clearly, one of the most unique Nations. If you just sit back and just look at all the nations throughout world history, the rise and fall of civilizations, Israel is unique. And the Bible says that the reason Israel is unique is because God created Israel as a nation, formed Israel as a nation, and chose this nation to be his people, his treasured possession. Now, 
Why would God do that? Why? Why, for 1,500 years before Christ came, did God focus his effort, his energy, mostly on one nation? So we're doing a series here on the story of God. We've, we started with you know, eternity past and creation and the fall and the spread of sin through the earth, the call of Abraham, justification by faith, the exodus. Why does God form this nation for the 1,500 years of the Old Testament? That's the question I want us to, to focus on. And let's start to answer that question by looking at how God formed the nation of Israel. How did he create Israel? And to answer that, turn to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We'll start there. If you need a Bible, we want you all to have a Bible, you can look up. We intentionally don't flash verses very often up on the PowerPoint so that you won't get lazy. We want to hear the pages rustling. I want you to have your own Bible, you know, mustard stained, tear stained, okay, it's worn, it's yours, you know, duct taped together, okay, well weathered Bible. So if you don't have, didn't bring your Bible this morning, raise your hand, we'll pass one to you. But look at Genesis chapter 12, which is on page 8. I'll, I'll tell you page numbers in these Bibles that we've passed out. So in these Bibles, it's page 8, Genesis 12. Now here's the story, here's where we are. In Genesis 10 and 11, we're left with the world in which as far as we can read in those chapters, no one is calling upon God, trusting God, relying upon God, worshiping God, obeying God. No one is. Everyone has turned his or her backs on God. And so what does God do in a world like that? Well, God chooses to save a godless moon worshiper named Abram. So what God does is in great mercy, he reaches down and he changes Abram's heart. Somebody prayed back here about God taking out their heart of stone. That's exactly what God did for Abram. Took out that rebellious hard heart of pride, wanting to not bend the knee before the true God. Took that heart out, gave him a new heart, and all of a sudden Abraham saw who God really was. Just owned up to the truth. Look at who you are. Forget this moon worshiping stuff. Look at who God really is. So Abraham saw who God was, loved God, trusted God, obeyed God. He was saved by God's power. And then God makes him some astonishing promises. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Read what he says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. There it is. I'll make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, all the nations, all the people groups of the earth, shall be blessed. So Abraham trusted God's promises and obeyed, left the land, and God started to fulfill those promises. But now the problem was, here Abraham has been promised to become a great nation. He's 75 years old. His wife Sarah has never had any children. She can't have children. And as the years go on, they get up into their 90s, well past childbearing years. So where is this nation going to come from? God supernaturally enables Sarah to conceive. And so she gives birth to Isaac. Isaac then, Abraham, Sarah's son, marries Rebekah. Rebekah also is unable to conceive. She is barren as well, but God miraculously enables Rebekah 
to conceive and Isaac and Rebekah give birth to Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons and it's from those 12 sons that the whole people of Israel, the whole nation of Israel um, is born. A few years go by. Next thing, so we're kind of reviewing some past ground here we've already covered. Israel finds herself in Egypt, enslaved under the power of Pharaoh, who is massively powerful. So it looks like Israel is going to go the route that so many nations have when they're enslaved by another country, and they just kind of dissipate and, and are gone as a nation. But God intervenes. And remember the whole story about the ten plagues and God parting the Red Sea and Israel going across on dry land? God miraculously, supernaturally delivers his people from Egypt. And so they are are saved. And so here God is formed now. He's created supernaturally. He's formed. He's delivered this people Israel. And look at how Moses describes this. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Fifth book in, page 152, in the Bibles we just passed out, look at how Moses describes how God created this one nation, the nation of Israel, to be his people. Look at what he says. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Love to hear those pages turning. Moses says, he's talking to Israel, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God has chosen Israel to be his treasured possession. Now one question you might wonder is why did God choose them? Why would God choose this nation? What was it about them that moved God to choose them? You might think maybe it's because they're more righteous than other nations. No, they weren't. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 6, two chapters later. Right across the page in the Bible just passed out. Deuteronomy 9, 6. Here's what Moses says to Israel. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. So Israel was not such a spiritual, godly, righteous people. In fact, they were stubborn. Hebrew is stiff-necked. Okay? They would not bend before God. And it's interesting, as we'll see more in detail next week, through the, the, the whole history of Israel, even up to the present time, tragically, the vast majority of Israel kept turning their backs to God again and again and again. But the point here is God did not choose them because of their righteousness. They were a sinful people. Well, maybe okay, maybe they weren't very righteous, but maybe like they were really big, really strong, had a lot of resources. No, it's not why either. Look at chapter 7, verse 7. Go back two chapters. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. It's really important to Moses that Israel understand why God chose them. So look at what he says in chapter 7, verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. Okay, so get this picture. Israel was a tiny, sinful nation. 
And God chose them to be his treasured possession. Why did he choose them? Look at verse 8. Keep reading there. Chapter 7, verse 8. God tells them why. You're all wondering why. It's not because they're spiritual and righteous. It's not because they're big and strong. They're tiny. They're sinful. Why did God choose them? Verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you. He loves them. This tiny, sinful nation. He loves them. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That's why the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's because God loved them. Now, this might puzzle you because in our culture, let me put it this way, God's love is very different from love in our culture. God's love, God, God's love is, means that he delights to do amazing good for undeserving people. That's what God's love is all about. God's love means that he just has a passion. He's thrilled. He just gets off on doing amazing good for like tiny sinful nations like Israel or tiny sinful people like me or like you. Now see, this is really good news for us unless you think you're deserving. If you realize you're not deserving, this is good news And I should tell you, you're not deserving, okay? So this should be good news for all of us. I'm not deserving, you're not deserving, we're not deserving. What amazing news that God chooses tiny, undeserving people. He chooses unrighteous people. He chooses godless, moon-worshipper people. These are the people, because this is all the people, okay? And he chooses those people to pour his spirit out upon, to save, to love. He loves to do good for undeserving people. Some of you think, I'd love to know God, but I'm just not spiritual. I could never be good enough. You're right. You're right. You're not spiritual. And you never could be good enough. That has never stopped God. He'll do for you what he did for Abraham. Change your heart. Turn your heart towards him. Free you from your pride. Subdue your, 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 your rebellious will. Show you his glory so you love him. He'll change you. And it'll never be about you deserving it because you never can. You never should try. Stop trying to deserve. Receive, trust, love, worship. Do you see that? So God chooses this tiny, sinful nation to be his treasured possession. Now, why? Why would God choose for 1,500 years before Jesus came to focus his effort mostly on, on one nation, through that time period. When since Christ has come, God's focusing on all the nations now. So why before Christ came, did God focus his attentions mostly on Israel, the people of Israel? Why? Look first, a couple different scriptures, at Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5. This is page 694. Book of Ezekiel. Okay, Old Testament prophet. Page 694, why did God focus on a nation? Ezekiel 5, verse 5, page 694. Ezekiel is a powerful book. I hope you read Ezekiel this year in 2010. Look what God says, Ezekiel 5, 5. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center 
of the nations with countries all around her. So God formed Israel and intentionally put her in the center of the nations. So you can see on this map here, if you can see it, okay? So here's all the nations, and there's Israel right there in the center of the whole, I mean, all the nations all around there, and Israel's right in the center, okay? That's, that's what God's doing. He strategically places Israel in the center. Now, why would he do that? It's because he wants all the nations around to notice Israel. He didn't put Israel like way off here somewhere and all the other nations over here. No, no, no. He took Israel and he put Israel right in the center. He cleared out the promised land of the Canaanites and they, they deserved God's judgment because they were godless people just like we've been, okay? Cleared them all out, put Israel right in the center of the nation so that all the nations would notice. It's kind of like if you wanted somebody to be noticed and on Super Bowl Sunday, right before game time, before they flip the coin, the teams are off, and you put this person right in the center of the stadium. Everybody'd notice, right? So God's doing here. He takes Israel, puts, puts them right in the center of the nation, so everybody can notice. Now, what did he want people to notice about Israel? Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. This is page 148. Deuteronomy 4. Verses 5 through 8, page 148 in the Bibles we just passed out. So God puts Israel right in the center of the nations, and what does he want Israel to, or what does he want the nations to notice from Israel? 5 through 8, Deuteronomy 4. Here Moses is talking to Israel. Look at what he says. See, I've taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Okay? Think about the peoples. God put us in the center of the nation so that the nations, the peoples can notice. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. But now it's not just so that they'll notice the people. Look at verses 7 and 8. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Here's the picture. Here's all the nations, okay? And God puts Israel right in the center and then all the nations are watching. And what do they see? They see that whenever Israel calls upon God, God responds. <gasps> Are you kidding me? Look, they pray and their God does things. Does your God do things? My God has never done anything. Does your, does your God do anything? No, my, their God does things. He's so near to them. He answers whenever they call him. Look, they're calling upon him again. He's doing other things. So they're just blown away by how near God is. And then they see the, the love and the harmony and the stability that is experienced in, in Israel as a society. And they say, those are righteous, wise laws that their God has given to them. Our laws are totally screwed up compared to those laws. So the nations are all watching Israel. Israel's in the center of the nations and they're saying, their God must be the true God. Their God does things. We're praying all day long, nothing's ever happening. 
Their God does things. And their God's wise and just. And so God's purpose in putting Israel in the center of the nations is kind of like, like Israel is a disco ball put in the center of the ballroom so that the, the light of God would shine out from this nation of Israel. So everybody would just see, look at who God is. So see, God chose Israel, poured his favor out upon Israel, blessed Israel, not because Israel deserved it, None of us deserve anything from God. We've all turned our backs on him. But God poured out his mercy so that the nations would see who God is through Israel. One other scripture. 2 Samuel 7.23. First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel. I'm sorry, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. It's on page 260 in the Bible just passed out. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel. That's how it goes. Old Testament. So here David's talking to God and he talks to God about Israel. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 23. Look at what David says. And who is like your people Israel? What other nations like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name. Not making Israel a name, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and it's God, God's. So God forms Israel, creates her, sets her in the center of the nations. Why? To make himself a name before all the nations. So that all the nations would see, look at who God is. God is awesome. God's powerful. God's gracious. That's the purpose. So for 1,500 years before Jesus came, God wants the nations to see who God is. And so he puts Israel right in the center and for those 1,500 years displays his attributes, his reality, his perfections to the nation. So that, and this is for us today too, we've got the Old Testament. This is the disco ball of Israel right here in the Old Testament, two-thirds of your Bible, okay? So we can open up and see so that the nations and so that we ourselves can see, for example, we can see that God is real. I mean, look at how he parted the Red Sea so they could go across. So that the nations and we ourselves could see how, how near God is, to anybody who will trust him, like Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, childless Hannah, praying every year, God, give me a child. Let me conceive. Give me a child. And God comes and answers her and gives her Samuel and then a lot of other kids. But here's little Hannah praying, and God, who's created the universe, gives her a child. How near God is. The nations can see how, how forgiving God is. David Murder, adultery, God forgives him. (gasps) God is awesome and he forgives. And then they also saw how just God was. I mean, the rest of Ezekiel chapter 5, Ezekiel says how the nations are going to ask, what did Israel do? What did they do? They're like a burned over land. What did they do? And God says, Ezekiel, tell them. 
It's because they turned their backs on me again and again and again and again. So Israel displays God's forgiveness. Israel displays God's wrath. And Israel displays God's mercy. Seventy years later, God brings them back. Jerusalem's rebuilt. Favors poured out upon them. So Israel is formed and created. God focuses attention on the people, not to the neglect of the nations, but for the nations. Israel is exhibit A in the law courts. Here's who I am, flesh and blood, in history, in the center of the nations. Look, see my reality, my nearness, my mercy, my love, my wrath, my forgiveness, my grace. See who I am. That's why God worked through a nation for 1,500 years before Jesus came. Now let me just point out how this fits in with God's overall purpose. Very first week of this series, uh, we talked about eternity past and that God has always existed as a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, full of passionate celebration in their perfections as displayed on each member of the trinity. And what moved God to create was his joy. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't needy. He was full of omnipotent, all-powerful joy in his own perfections. So he chose to go public to demonstrate, to display his perfections. So he created so that he could display who he, who he is so that he could share with us the joy he has in beholding his glory, his perfections. So you've been created, you're wired, and reality is such that your highest satisfaction is come, will, will come from beholding God. Beholding God. You seeing him, worshiping him, loving him. So just let this sink into your mind. You will never be more satisfied. You'll never be more secure. You'll never be more humbled. You'll never be more strong, comforted, peaceful. You'll never be more confident, full of hope, loving, gracious, gentle, than when you are beholding God. And to help you do that, God created Israel. History of Israel, like a disco ball, so that we could see who God is. In, in Corinthians, this isn't just for the nations in Old Testament, this is for us too. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul says, what happened in Israel's history happened to them and was written down for us. 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. So that we could open up and see. So this is just kind of a side note here. It's, I want to appeal, do you love the Old Testament? Do you, do you just love you know, Genesis through Malachi? The disco ball? It's like, whoa! I, I just hope that you feast on God as he's revealed in the Old Testament. His faithfulness. His love, his mercy, his goodness. Tremble before his wrath. Rejoice in his forgiveness. Feast on God is displayed in the Old Testament. Okay, that's Old Testament. Now, so where do you go next in this message? I, I thought, well, let's do this. Let's take a look at, at what we can learn about God from Israel in the next stage of the story. So 
What do we learn about God as he leads Israel from the parting of the Red Sea through the wilderness to Sinai, where he gives the law? We'll talk about that next week. So what do we learn about God? God did all these things for Israel so that the nations could see and so that we could see and learn. So what do we learn about God? So turn to Exodus chapter 15. That's page 57. Chapter 15, 16, 17, 18, and there's three I mean, I'm just going to pull out three. There's more, but there's three crucial truths I want you to focus on here. What do we learn about God as he leads Israel from the Red Sea through the wilderness to Sinai? First lesson, God provides for his people. He provides for his people. You can see this starting in chapter 15, verse 22. So they cross the Red Sea on dry land. They're going into the wilderness. Three days into the wilderness, no water. They run out of water, desert, wilderness, million people, no water. That would be a problem. Okay. Then all of a sudden they come upon some water, but it's, it's bitter. It's poisonous. It's not drinkable. And so Moses cries out to God, just like Deuteronomy four, seven. What great nation is there that has a God as near to it as the Lord, our God is to us whenever we call upon him. So God answers and says, Moses, see that log over there, throw it into the water. Moses throws it into the water. The water becomes drinkable. And so they drink. Then, 45 days into the wilderness, they run out of food. Big problem. Okay? What does God do? I just love this. This is just amazing. God causes fresh bread to be baked and delivered to them every morning. Okay? Manna. Manna's like, I don't know what it was, it's like cornflakes or something, but it was all on the ground and they would be able to pick it up. So fresh bread baked and delivered every morning and then fresh meat delivered every night. The quail would come and land. Remember, you read this, right? They, they, every night, so fresh bread in the morning, fresh meat in the evening. I mean, can't do any better than that, right? Meat and potatoes, basic meal right there. All right, so meat and bread. Anyway, so he provides food for them. And then again in chapter 17, the people are out of water again. Moses cries out to God. God says, strike that rock with your staff. Moses strikes the rock with the staff. Water gushes out of the rock. Point is simply this. God provides for his people. God formed Israel, had them walk through the wilderness, had these things take place, had them be recorded in Exodus 15, 16, and 17 for you to read this morning. Because you need God to provide for you. Don't you? I mean, we've all got things. I would guess every single person here, there's something you're worried about, something you're fearful about. Right? And if you don't have one, just give it another five minutes. Let me give you some suggestions. No, I won't do that. Okay. We've all got them. But see, the problem is, if we are worried or fearful, church straight up, you're not trusting God. Uh, my point isn't to condemn you, but just to say, oh, well, this, you mean I can trust him and I don't need to worry or I don't need to fear. You never need to worry or fear. I need to, I don't ever need to worry or fear. I need to preach this to myself big time. Okay, but there's never a good reason to worry or fear. Never. That's what God wants you to understand. Now that Jesus has come, You become one of God's people by trusting him. And if you're trusting him, if you're one of God's people, he will provide everything you need. 
I promise you. He, more important, he promises you. That's what he does for his people. Second, God responds to his people when they pray. Chapter 17, verse 8, Amalek attacks with his armies, attacks Israel. Israel's, are, Israel's soldiers start to resist and start to defend themselves. And what does Moses do? He, he starts to pray. He lifts up his hands to pray. And as the story goes on, Moses' hands start to get tired. And, and when his hands drop, which is a picture of him stopping praying, Amalek's armies prevail. And when Moses' hands go back up, Israel's armies prevail. And so Aaron and her holds Moses' hands up. You know the story. And as long as his hands are still up as he's praying, Israel's armies prevail and defeat the Amalekites. Here's the point. Here's the moral of the story. Not that you've got to raise your hands in prayer. Although, I mean, I just would encourage you, if you've never raised your hands in prayer or knelt down or put your face in the carpet to pray, there's times where that helps me kind of, you know, get engaged a little bit more in prayer. Focus, okay? So, but that's not a requirement by any means. It's all a matter of the, the heart. The point is simply this. God responds when we pray. God responds. When you pray, God moves. And when you don't pray, most of the time he, he waits until you will pray. Some of you, not all of you, some of you have the Amalekites prevailing against you. And the reason, some of you, the reason is because you haven't been praying. Have you prayed? N- not just, you know, now I lay me down to sleep, you know, blah, 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 Amen. But have you, have you really gotten on your face before God and met the living God about this concern, this need, this difficulty, and asked him to help you? Where you are really talking to the living God through Jesus and asking him for help. That's not true for all of you, but some of you, you've had an area of your life where the Amalekites are prevailing, and the reason is you haven't been praying, and you know it's true. So i got really good news for you. Pray. Israel's armies are prevailing. Malachite's armies are prevailing. Israelites' armies are prevailing. So stick with that, okay? Third, I love where this goes next. Here's a question that the nations might have had at this point, and that some of you might have had. If God provides for his people and responds to the prayers of his people, what about those who aren't his people? What about the Gentiles? What about the nations? Okay? And I love what happens in Exodus 18. Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. Jethro is a Midianite. He's not one of the nation of Israel. He's not Jewish. He's not an Israelite. He's a Midianite, a Gentile. He's one of the surrounding nations. Not only that, he's a Midianite priest, which was not good news. Okay? Because this is, he was a priest of a false religion. He was an, he would lead people in idol worship. So he was a Midianite priest. Okay, this, is, this is not promising here. But even though it wasn't promising in verse 8, Moses shares the gospel with his father-in-law. Have you shared the gospel with your father-in-law? Okay? Moses does. Verse 8. Look at what happens. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them So Moses shares the gospel. And look what happens in verses 10 and 11. Jethro turns away from his idolatry and puts his trust in Yahweh, the true God. Verse 10, Jethro said, 
Blessed be the Lord. That's the word Yahweh. Who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord Yahweh is greater than all gods because in this affair, they, the Egyptians, dealt arrogantly with the people and that's why God destroyed them. And then look at what Jethro does in verse 12. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Okay, so why did Jethro bring a burnt offering and a sacrifice? It's because Moses had shared the gospel with him. Moses had told Jethro, Jethro, with all due respect, you've turned your back on God. I have too. I think it's probably what Moses would have said. And because you've turned your back on God, you face punishment from God. You've seen what God does with his punishment to Egypt. That's what you deserve. That's what I've deserved too. But then Moses went on, in great love, Jethro, God is full of mercy, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and grace. He's made a way for your punishment to be put upon another. He's made a way for someone else to be punished instead of you. And that's pictured in animal sacrifices. And so Jethro heard this and he just said, yes. So he brought burnt offerings and sacrifices and he repented of his turning his back on God and he turned back to put his trust in God's mercy and he offered up the the burnt offerings and God changed Jethro's heart and forgave Jethro of all of his sins and for the first time Jethro knew the, the joy and the satisfaction of worshiping and knowing the true God. All his life he'd been a priest of this false religion. Nothing there, nothing there. He's met God. He's filled with God's love, God's presence, God's joy. And so Jethro is saved here. A Gentile, a godless Gentile, welcomed into being part of God's people. So see, even though God chose Israel as a nation, as his people, put them in the center of the nations, Gentiles who trusted in God's mercy understood that God made a way for their punishment to be put upon another, which is all a picture of what Jesus would do, but it was a little murky back then, but they offered the sacrifices, God forgave them, saved them, changed their hearts, and welcomed them to become part of his people. And the same is true today. If you're not Jewish, you can be part of God's people today. Okay? We know that the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to what Jesus would do on the cross. Your sin, the punishment that you deserve, can be punished on another, Jesus. The punishment that I deserve, the punishment that you deserve, can be experienced by another, Jesus. Jesus came to be punished in the place of those he would save. And so, if you'll bend the knee before Jesus and trust him and receive him as your savior and your Lord and your treasure, your guide, your prize, you'll be completely forgiven. Your heart will be changed. You'll come to know God and you'll experience being becoming part of God's people. He'll provide for you what you need. He'll respond to you when you pray. And best of all, you'll know him. He'll satisfy your heart. That's why God chose Israel so that today so the nations back then, but also so that today we can see who God is from how he operates in the nation of Israel.
His love, His goodness, His glory, His grace. Okay, any burning questions? It's like, I just don't get this part or something. Because uh, it's just like one or two. We only got time for one or two. But I like to open it up because you always help make things more clear. The nation of Israel today is, uh, is not following God. Right? Just like I wasn't. And just like you weren't. We're not dissing on them. This is just where we all were. The vast majority of Israel did not recognize their Messiah when he came. And the reason they didn't is because they didn't know God. The vast majority of Israel had turned their backs on God. The scribes and Pharisees, the vast majority of them, except for Nicodemus and a couple others, had turned their backs on God. So, is the nation of Israel today God's people? I would say, well, you've got you to say yes or no. You've got to define your terms carefully. Um, I would say that they're not, if, you, if what you mean by that is, are they saved because of God's mercy, and are they in good, good standing with God? They're not. They're not. But Romans 11 says that, my understanding of Romans 11, is that the nation of Israel will be saved as a nation in the last day, at the end of history. And so there's good news. All that God promised Israel will be fulfilled. And again, no, no disrespect meant to the Jewish people. I hear this very carefully. The Jewish people don't believe in God right now. Um, I mean, if, if they say, is there a God, they'd say yes. The Orthodox would say yes. But, but they don't know God creator. They don't worship God creator. They have all done what I've done too. They've, they're turning their backs on God. If they didn't turn their backs on God, they'd welcome Jesus. So Jesus said. Jesus said, if you, if you loved God, you'd welcome me. And so, again, this is no disrespect, because this is where I was at for years, and this is where we've all been at. So we've all done the exact same thing. And I'll tell you what the answer is. Dale's question is, how can Israel have experienced all that they did and not not bend the knee before God? I mean, I didn't cover in Exodus 15, three days into the wilderness, they've just experienced all the plagues, parting of the Red Sea, and they're grumbling because they have no water. We... God wrote that and had it happen, so we'd all say, why? It's as plain as day. And you know what the answer is? Same reason I sinned this morning, and you sinned this morning. It shows us the utter wickedness of our sin. We have evidence about God to burn. It's all over. It's just everywhere. And I keep turning my back on him. And you do too. And Israel did too. So that's next week's lesson though. Okay? I'm going to stop there. Um, here's some takeaways. Four. Feast on God in the Old Testament. Ask God, open my eyes to who you are in the Old Testament. He gave you the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. It was written for us. It's for us. Feast on the Old Testament. Second. God provides for his people. He will provide for you if you're trusting Jesus. So don't worry. Don't be afraid. He's your father. You're his adopted child. He loves you. You are his responsibility. He'll provide. That's second. Third, God responds to his people when we pray. Don't let there be an area of your life that's going poorly that you don't pray about. That just makes no sense. 
Ask God to help. Cry out to him, and you'll watch him work. And then fourth, understand that Gentiles can be accepted as part of God's people through faith in Jesus. So if you haven't met the Lord, trust Jesus today. Trust him today. And if you have met the Lord, share who Jesus is with your father-in-law. Or anybody else, okay? Your neighbor. All right, let's stand together and let's pray. You've placed Israel before our eyes, Lord. And in Israel we see your amazing nearness, your awesome mercy, your faithfulness, your wrath, your patience, your goodness, your promises, your love. Lord, we, we hear, we, we want to say, we want to trust you. We want to say yes to you. And I pray that you'd strengthen those who are fearful, that they would know that you provide. You would touch the hearts of those who haven't been praying, that they would pray. Anybody here who hasn't yet bent the knee before you, Jesus, that right now you would cause them to do that by your mercy. And Lord, help us all to feast on who you are in the Old Testament, that we would love this display of who you are in this amazing nation of Israel. Thank you for this time this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.